This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In the late 90s and early 2000s, no two bands captivated the world like the Backstreet Boys and InSync. But behind these hit boy bands was a music mogul perpetrating one of the longest-running Ponzi schemes in history. His name? Lou Pearlman. If you enjoy these episodes on pop music's infamous defrauder, follow the series Con Artists. There you'll find more stories of history's trickiest hustlers, swindlers, and schemers. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On October 8, 1980, the skies were clear over Manhattan. It was an ordinary Wednesday for most people, except for the lucky few invited to the latest Jordash product launch party. The popular clothing brand pulled out all the stops for the big event. The catered food was top-notch, the alcohol was flowing, and the music was bumping. But the biggest attraction was still on its way. A brand new blimp, specially leased, from Airship Enterprises Limited. Jordache designed the ship to dazzle. Its brilliant gold exterior would reflect the sunlight and amaze onlookers who would forever associate the Jordache logo with the captivating aircraft. As the party began in earnest, a couple guests spotted something floating towards them. But the image was far from inspiring. Instead of a shining beacon of industry and capitalism, the blimp was a revolting shade of brown. Moreover, the airship was struggling to stay afloat. Less than a mile into its flight, the blimp sputtered and took a nosedive, crash-landing in a garbage dump. The blimp's performance put a major damper on the party. Jordash was especially angry with the shameful display. But one person ended up benefiting from the disaster. Lou Perlman, the fledgling CEO of Airship Enterprises and the owner of the faulty blimp. The crash netted Lou $2.5 million of insurance money. Reports later emerged that the blimp was improperly designed, perhaps even intentionally. But even amidst these rumors, Perlman 
was already launching another bigger and better con. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first of two episodes on Lou Pearlman, a crafty con artist who operated under the guise of a successful businessman and entertainment mogul. This week, we'll see how he became a major player in the aviation industry with the help of shady business practices. Next week, we'll talk about Lou's transition from aerospace to the entertainment industry. We'll see how his cons expanded and learn what caused his massive empire to finally crumble. Lou Pearlman made his name fostering boy bands, but his true love was the sky. His first business was a charter helicopter rental service, which he expanded to include private jets and blimps. On the surface, these companies appeared legitimate, but in reality, they were supported by an elaborate Ponzi scheme that funneled money directly into Lou's pockets. The more successful Lou became, the greedier he got. He started operating more elaborate cons under the umbrella of his legitimate businesses. He even transformed his aviation empire into a multi-million dollar entertainment company. Setting up base in Orlando, Florida, Lou created boy bands like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. But instead of looking out for his protégé's best interests, he used their fame to enrich himself. All Lou cared about was money, and he had no problem with cheating innocent people to get it. Throughout his life, Louis J. Pellman was accustomed to getting his way. And on the rare occasions when he faced obstacles, he bulldozed through them. This selfish behavior may have been due to his upbringing. Lou's parents, Hai and Rini Pellman, had multiple failed pregnancies before his birth on June 19, 1954. So when little Lou finally came along, he was nothing short of a miracle. The family lived a comfortable middle-class life in the Flushing neighborhood of Queens, New York. Lou's father, Herman, who everyone called High, ran a dry-cleaning business, and Rini was a housewife who volunteered as a teacher's aide at Lou's school. Their apartment in a six-story brick building wasn't glamorous, but it was comfortable and happy, and the Perlman family revolved around their young son. Because they had struggled to have a child, they doted on Lou and gave him everything he ever wanted. Lou struggled to make friends in school, with the exception of a few neighborhood boys. As such, he spent little time playing with others and instead harbored an early interest in business. 
At the age of eight, Lou opened a lemonade stand, catering to tired workers as they arrived home at the end of the day. The early returns weren't promising, but instead of shutting down, Lou took action. He tweaked his pricing strategy until the lemonade stand's profit margin was over 100%. Lou's father, Hai, encouraged his son's interest in business. He took Lou on dry cleaning runs and taught him the ropes of the trade, showing him how important it was to make personal connections with his clients. Hai wanted to open a whole chain of dry cleaners, but he never got his dream off the ground. To make matters worse, when Lou was still young, Hai's business burned to the ground, and Hai had to go work for another laundry shop. Lou never forgot his father's disappointments and vowed that he would never be subject to the same fate. He wanted to have an entrepreneurial career and not just a job. To fulfill this promise, Lou developed a few obsessions, the first of which was music. He fell in love with the industry thanks to his first cousin, Art Garfunkel, better known as one half of Simon and Garfunkel. Lou was extremely proud of his connection to Garfunkel. He even tried his own hand at music. He took guitar lessons as a child and formed a band called The Starlighters that was later renamed Flyer. But despite Lou's efforts as a guitar player and then the band's manager, they never reached Garfunkel's level of success. Rather than stay mediocre, Lou turned his energy towards his other interest, aviation. In his official biography and across many interviews, Lou described the first time he saw a blimp. It was in 1964 when he was 10. As he later recalled, he watched from his window enraptured as a Goodyear blimp landed at the Flushing Airport for the World's Fair. He was so amazed by the sight that he traveled to the airport and begged the pilots to give him a ride. The pilots told Lou that he needed press credentials to get on board, so he wrote a story for his school newspaper to get Goodyear to give him a press pass. Surprisingly, they obliged, and he managed to get a free ride on a blimp. It was a good story, but like most of the stories behind his future businesses, none of it was real. Lou had stolen every detail of the tale from his neighbor and childhood friend, Alan Gross, who lived in the same building. The only shred of truth in the story was that Lou had developed a fascination with blimps. Yet, Lou's curiosity was purely superficial. He saw blimps as both a way to make money and as a symbol of wealth. He was determined to own one someday. Lou fixated on this idea as he graduated high school and matriculated into Queen's College to study accounting. For his final project, he created a business plan for a helicopter taxi service. In his mind, helicopters were a good first step into the world of aviation since they were cheaper than blimps. For most seniors, turning this project in for a final grade would have been enough. But Lou wasn't like most seniors. Even before he graduated in 1976, he immediately set about turning his plan into a reality. The 21-year-old turned to his famous cousin, Art Garfunkel, for startup money. Garfunkel passed along Lou's request to his father, Lou's uncle, who only agreed to finance Lou's second helicopter. 
Lou would have to acquire the first one on his own. Although others might have been disappointed, Lou saw his uncle's limited offer as a victory. He pitched his business idea to anyone and everyone, determined to get the funding for his first chopper. But he was young and inexperienced, so pretty much everyone turned him down. According to Lou's account, however, a stroke of luck came as he was pleading with a loan officer from E.F. Hutton. One of the bank execs overheard his pitch. Impressed, the exec recruited some fellow investors into the business, and together, they bought and leased a helicopter to Lou. In one fell swoop, Lou Perlman had two choppers to his name, and with the help of his neighbor, Alan Gross, he founded a company called Commuter Helicopter Service Incorporated. It was his first taste of true business, but it was only the start. And while Lou's first company operated honestly, his greed would soon surpass his moral compass. Coming up next, Lou expands his small empire and blurs the line between businessman and con artist. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1975, Lou Perlman managed to secure enough money to start his own business at the tender age of 21. With the ability to rent out two charter helicopters, Lou felt like a superstar, despite running the company out of his parents' apartment. Whenever he discussed the business with his friends and associates, he claimed that the company made him a millionaire within the first year. In reality, the company struggled financially. The helicopter's maintenance and upkeep cost more than he had anticipated. In the end, the cost didn't matter to Lou. After all, the helicopters were a means to an end, breaking into the blimp business. It's unclear why Lou found blimps more appealing than helicopters or jets, but whatever the reason, he was determined to get his hands on one. To this end, Lou merged Commuter Helicopter Service Incorporated with a larger charter company called Island Helicopters only a few years after launching it. In 1976, Lou took his first step towards blimp ownership by starting yet another company, Transcom Airways. With the help of his new contacts at Island Helicopters, Lou leased a private twin-prop plane and rented it out for flights in the New York area. Transcom was a small operation, but Lou routinely made it look like a much more successful company. By 1979, however, Transcom didn't actually own any of the planes they flew, though Lou claimed that anonymous investors had given him money to purchase several planes. Lou leveraged this image of success to get his first hands-on experience with blimps. When business magnate Theodore Wollenkemper came to town, Theodore ran Westdeutsche Luftverbung, a renowned aviation company known for its high-quality blimps. 
24-year-old Lou sent Theodore a huge birthday card for his 50th birthday and offered him the free services of island helicopters while he was in New York. He only asked for a meeting in return. According to Lou's recollection of the event, Theodore was impressed by the young man's boldness and accepted his offer. The two of them clicked. Theodore later invited Lou to learn more about the aviation business at his facilities in Tokyo. In 1979, Lou spent time overseas, learning about blimps directly from Theodore. And when he returned to the United States in 1980, he was ready to start his latest company, Airship Enterprises, a company focused entirely on blimps. The only problem was that Lou didn't have a blimp, nor did he have the money to buy one. Although his businesses seemed to be thriving, he used the proceeds to improve his lifestyle rather than reinvest in his companies. In Lou's mind, living large was vital to his image as a successful businessman. So, strapped for cash, Lou came up with another solution. He would build a blimp himself. He hoped to secure an advertising contract to make money off the aircraft. Only one company was willing to take a risk and go with Airship Enterprises. Jordash Jeans Jordash was at the top of their game in the 1980s, and they wanted to push their brand even further. The blimp Perlman built began as an old industrial logging balloon used to lift trees out of a dense forest as his base. But this balloon had a V-shape, so Lou had to be resourceful in repurposing it. He had a crew of people hack the balloon into two pieces and then reassemble the scraps. With a little ingenuity, Lou's team transformed the blimp into the oblong shape Lou was going for. In the end, they created something that met Lou's satisfaction, but its capacity for flight was a different story. Don Guth, one of the teenagers who worked on the craft, later recalled, it was in the shape of an airship, but it was never meant to fly. Nevertheless, Lou had made a deal with Jordash, and he had no reservations about delivering the ragtag blimp, no matter how ill-equipped it was in the air. While Lou and his company had promised Jordash a sleek and agile German blimp, what they delivered was something very different. The 105-foot-long farce rose up from its first flight on October 8, 1980. Though Jordash had requested that it be painted gold, several days in the sun had turned the vehicle brown. Alan Gross described it as a giant turd. Flying over New Jersey, headed for New York Harbor, the blimp only reached about 30 feet above the ground and immediately began listing to one side. The overheated paint caused helium inside the blimp to expand unevenly and the entire structure was unsuited for flight. Moments later, the blimp began moving in circles and finally spiraled toward the ground. It crashed into pine trees before it even traversed a mile. The pilot crash-landed near a garbage dump, and while the man lived to tell the tale, the blimp was kaput. Its embarrassing crash into a garbage pile made headlines. But the negative press surrounding the incident actually delivered where the blimp failed. 
Jordash received a huge bump in its publicity, and Lou eventually received a $2.5 million insurance payout. It was a win-win. By the early 1980s, Lou Pearlman considered himself a successful businessman. He had three offices in Manhattan, one for each of his aviation companies, and he finally moved out of his parents' apartment. He claimed to have made $400 million by the time he turned 24, and his spending habits supported this story. Lou ordered lavish dinners, bought expensive designer clothing, and lived like a multi-millionaire. But in actuality, his businesses were far more modest. Despite being in charge of three aviation companies, Lou wasn't bringing in much money. The maintenance costs were astronomical, but Lou would never admit to his financial struggles. Instead, he charged his extravagant purchases to his credit cards or added to his tabs at his favorite restaurants. But ultimately, Lou was spending at an unsustainable rate. In order to keep up, he turned his legitimate charter plane company, Transcom Airways, into a Ponzi scheme. Transcom used a modest number of helicopters and leased planes for its flights. But Lou's newer venture, Transcontinental Airlines, also called Transcon, was supposed to be big. When Lou talked about it with friends, family, and potential investors, he represented it as a booming business with a fleet of jets and record-breaking profits. When potential investors asked after his finances, Lou provided them with professionally audited reports that proved his claims. However, the accounting firm Lou used to audit these reports didn't exist. He had invented the firm for the explicit purpose of fooling investors. And it worked. Lou's sales pitch and fake documents were convincing, and he had investors in Transcon throwing in around $5,000 a share. With this fraudulently acquired money, Lou kept himself and his fledgling business empire afloat. Soon enough, this fraud became his primary source of income. Lou continued this scheme for several years, chugging along, convinced that something better would fall into his lap, or someone. And in 1985, it happened. With the help of Jerome Rosen, a Wall Street stockbroker with a questionable moral compass and a history of fraudulent trading, Lou's company went public as Airship International. By holding an IPO, the new company would get an influx of cash that could be used to buy a new blimp, one that would actually fly. To get the most money out of the IPO, Jerome and his brokerage sold the stocks using an illegal technique called pump and dump. They hooked Clyde's interest in the company by making it look like it was on the verge of something big, thus inflating the cost of the stocks. In reality, these shares were next to worthless. The company had no capital and no revenue stream. But the tactic worked. In June of 1985, the newly established Airship International's IPO raised a total of $3 million. Lou used this money to buy a quality blimp from his old mentor, Theodore Wollenkemper. With a real blimp in his possession, Lou finally secured some honest work for the company, a promotional contract with McDonald's. 
The IPO may have been conducted under shady circumstances, but it breathed new life into Airship International. Over the next four years, Liu used the company to promote himself and his own interests. With Airship International thriving, Liu found that investors were more willing to believe in him and his other companies. They wanted to make money off a sure thing, and in their minds, Liu Perlman was the real deal. This may have been a result of his genial personality. Perlman could never say no to people and always remembered small, personal details. This ended up giving him a competitive edge in his cons, thanks to a cognitive bias called the halo effect. According to the halo effect, our judgment is influenced when we meet someone with at least one noticeable positive quality, such as their attractiveness or their likability. Because they have one positive quality, we are more likely to perceive them as having other positive qualities, such as intelligence, leadership ability, or trustworthiness. Lou Perlman was always perceived as exceedingly friendly. As a result, the people he met often saw other positive qualities in him. One of these was his business acumen. And since he could point to some success with Airship International, people were all too willing to trust him with their money for Transcon Airlines. So Lou channeled their enthusiasm into Transcon, convincing them that the company was equally as successful. And yet, Transcon was barely doing any business at all. By the late 1980s, it had become nothing more than a front to collect money from investors. At this point in his career, Liu found that despite his best intentions, his businesses weren't nearly as profitable as he hoped. However, the dishonest measures he used to raise money were more than making up the difference. And soon, in the wake of a devastating loss, Liu would dive even deeper into the criminal world. Coming up, Liu grows greedier after a series of unfortunate events. Now, back to the story. In 1988, 33-year-old Liu Perlman was living large. His newly formed aviation company, Airship International, was thriving after acquiring its first blimp. And in addition to the income he was earning as a CEO, Liu was pocketing the money from investments that came pouring into Transcon. He was living the high life. But just a month before Lou's 34th birthday, tragedy struck. On Mother's Day in 1988, Rini Perlman died. In one single blow, Lou lost his closest confidant and his moral compass. Without his mother's guidance, Lou began indulging in dirtier and greedier business tactics. He pushed Transcon onto investors harder than ever, taking money from friends and family alike to pay for his increasingly indulgent lifestyle. He also resorted to shady practices in his legitimate businesses. In June of 1989, Airship International's second blimp crashed in a devastating windstorm. Soon after the blimp crashed, he filed an insurance claim, receiving a generous payout similar to the Jordash blimp crash years before. Yet while Lou received the insurance money, he didn't actually own the crashed blimp. It was leased from Lou's mentor, 
Theodore Wollenkemper. When Theodore discovered that Lou had profited from the destruction of his blimp, he sued Airship International. The case was settled out of court for an unknown sum of money, avoiding a full media spectacle. But Lou lost money he'd already spent. He needed a way to recoup his losses. Following the crash, Lou created one of his longest-lasting cons under his public aircraft company Transcontinental Airlines. It was called the Employee Investment Savings Account, or AESA. There is an actual legitimate federally insured vehicle called an ERISA, or Employee Retirement Investment Savings Account. But Lou's AESA accounts were a completely fraudulent adaptation. He told investors that they didn't even have to be employed at Transcontinental to partake in the AESA plan. He claimed he had a special clause that allowed select friends and family members to invest. The best part? It claimed to pay an annual return of 8%, which was higher than banks could promise. Lou backed this figure up with forged guarantees from the FDIC, the American International Group Insurance Company, and Lloyds of London. And many of his buyers, who had spent their whole lives building a nest egg for their retirement, took Lou's word as truth. From then on, the scheme was simply a matter of keeping his investors in the dark while they dumped money into the fake retirement accounts. One of Lou's henchmen, Robert Fischetti, oversaw the investor database for the AESA program and sent statements to investors. In these statements, it appeared that the investors' money was earning interest. In actuality, none of the money was being saved, let alone compounding. Anyone who asked to cash out on a return would get paid with money from other investors, but usually, once they saw the gains, they stopped asking for payouts. They would wait until sometime down the line when they were ready to retire to fully cash out. The problem was, by the time they did, there would be no money left to Lou's name. Lou had spun the perfect web of lies. In the end, he enticed over 1,500 investors who eventually paid over $200 million. These accounts became Lou's main source of income. By 1990, Airship International was struggling once again, only having one blimp in their hangar limited profit margins, and their latest promotional contract with Metropolitan Life Insurance ran out. Lou struggled to find another long-term client. In 1990, Airship International reported a loss of $4.5 million, followed by another $4.4 million the next year. Things were looking dire for the company, but Lou never admitted it. He maintained the impression that business was booming. The bluff worked in his favor when he met his next target, Julian Bensher. Julian Bensher was the son of a wealthy British businessman. He grew up privileged and comfortable, with the exception that a large inheritance would make his adult life just as easy. But when his father died, the will stipulated that Julian couldn't touch his portion of the money until he made his first million. Though the prospects seemed daunting, Julian had a keen nose for business. And in his early 20s, 
With $20,000 borrowed from his mother, Julian managed to make his million by becoming the landlord for a European blimp company's manufacturing facility. Julian was practical and sensible when it came to his business interests, but he was impressed by Lou Perlman's flash. The two first met at an aviation conference and in no time, Lou convinced Julian to join the Airship International team. Under Julian's guidance, Airship International was able to lease a second blimp and secure a long-term client for the ship. They eventually acquired several other blimps. With Julian's help, Airship International became nearly as successful as Lou always claimed it had been. At this point, Lou could have set his criminal ventures aside and lived off the money his legitimate business earned. But like so many other con artists that came before him, Lou's greed soon outpaced his not-so-modest income. There may have been a psychological reason for Lou's inability to control himself. Psychological studies have shown that the pursuit of greed is an addiction in its own right. According to psychologist Victor Sharmas, greed activates similar pathways in the brain as drug use. So every time Lou behaved greedily, his brain rewarded him with a hit of dopamine. After a while, he couldn't stop himself. It has also been suggested that such extreme greedy behavior is due to a person's underlying anxieties. According to psychologist Leon F. Seltzer, people may chase wealth and material possessions to cover their own insecurities or to soothe emotional pain. In the case of Lou Perlman, this unbridled greed may have been a residual effect from the loss of his mother. Lou had always strived for success, but after his mother's passing in 1989, his need for money may have become far more intense. Soon, Lou wasn't even interested in the businesses he'd worked so hard to build from the ground up. While Julian Bencher was bending over backwards to make Airship International a legitimately profitable company, Lou turned his attention to another industry altogether, entertainment. Lou had been interested in music from a young age, thanks to the success of his cousin, Art Garfunkel. But he always saw it as a creative pursuit, instead of an economical one. This changed when he met a boy band called New Kids on the Block. According to Pullman, the group rented a plane from him for a full month, paying $250,000 in cash. Lou was so impressed by their flash that he immediately wanted to know more about them. After a little digging, Lou learned that the New Kids on the Block were enormously successful. They made $200 million in profits off their albums, and almost $800 million in touring and merchandising. Most importantly, the band didn't come together naturally. The act was created by Maurice Starr, the group's manager. Lou's many failures in aviation had proven to him that blimps, planes and helicopters were more trouble than they were worth. When Airship International was operating at its best, it was still tough to make a profit. And at its worst, his cons could sometimes barely cover his losses. In contrast, Lou saw the entertainment industry as a gleaming promise of riches. He was sure that he could create the next boy band sensation. 
It was simply a matter of finding the right people, and he had always had a gift with people. So in 1991, at 37 years old, Lou Pearlman left New York and moved to Orlando, Florida. He relocated his business empire and set about converting Transcontinental from an aviation company into an entertainment venture. And soon enough, his name would be synonymous with some of the most successful boy bands in the world, and one of the biggest cons the world had ever seen. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. In next week's part two, we'll discuss how Lou used popular boy bands like the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC to continue ripping off his investors and clients alike, and how his massive empire collapsed. For more information on Lou Pearlman, we found the Hit Charade: Lou Pearlman, Boy Bands, and the Biggest Ponzi Scheme in U.S. History by Tyler Gray extremely helpful for our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artists was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronach, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artists was written by Liz Dorovitsyn, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. Mm-hmm.